Hi, this is James Mercer from The Shins. This is Shirley Manson. This is Low Tallest, co-founder of The Cure. This is Huey Lewis giving you the story behind the song. The story behind the song is back with an exciting second season. We peel back the layers on music's most iconic hits with legendary artists like The Killers, Heart, The B-52s, Violent Femmes, Jewel, Huey Lewis, Modern English, and more. To keep the music flowing, we'll be sprinkling in classic episodes from our archives between each new one. So check out the story behind the song wherever you get your podcast. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. Consequence Podcast Network. Welcome to In Defense of Ska. We aim to push back on the mainstream's negative perception of the music. Ska deserves the respect genres like punk, hip-hop, and hardcore find among their listeners. Our host is renowned music journalist and author of the book In Defense of Ska, Aaron Carnes. Today we speak with Jawbreaker drummer Adam Faller. Jawbreaker formed in the 80s, originally while the members were students at New York University. They later relocated to Los Angeles and then relocated again to San Francisco. There, they found a home among the bubbling punk scene at Gilman. Their unique songwriting style, which would impact many younger Indian emo bands, was beloved by the scene. Following in the footsteps of fellow Gilman band Green Day, who signed to a major and blew up, Jawbreaker signed to Geffen. They famously received immense backlash from fans for selling out. However, time has shown their sellout record, Dear You, to be a timeless classic, one that their fans now love. Their 2017 reunion as Riot Fest headliners showed that they were innovative and always worked with integrity. And now, joining me is my co-host, veteran ska musician Adam Davis of Omnigon and Link80. I would have never guessed that we would end up with somebody from Jawbreaker on this podcast. I mean, what's the ska connection to Jawbreaker? Well, I think that that's the thing. Jawbreaker didn't play ska or anything, but I met Adam and... Uh, it, he told me that he liked the Untouchables and saw Untouchables play when he was a kid. So it just kind of goes to show that we think of ska the very in this very narrow world. Like this are the people that are part of ska; these are the people that are not. But people who you wouldn't think have a connection to ska or at least enjoy the music. Yeah, and I mean, I'm always happy to talk to other bands from the East Bay, other bands from the Gilman Street scene. Um, I think it's a really cool location to be from and it it really does uh influence all the music just the the location forever you know gilman's always going to have a connection to ska and, and ska's development because of operation ivy and the role that it played that's you know and also it's its role in being the cover of my first edition very important ska history there <laughs> that too yeah i mean we really do aim to show people who wouldn't expect that there's you know, some connection to ska, how important the music is and how much it is spread through the culture. When you and I met, you had told me that, uh, you, I think you grew, you said you grew up in like, um, Hermosa beach or Santa Monica or something like that. And, uh, that you were a fan of the untouchables. Yeah, I was, um, 
I'm from Los Angeles. I've been in San Francisco for like over 30 years. So I kind of feel like a local here now too. But um, yeah, I spent the first half of my life in in Los Angeles. I was born in Hermosa and, and um, I lived all over the West Side, Santa Monica, Palisades. Um, but yeah, I was, uh, I think it was, I think I went to see the Untouchables right when they started playing. Hmm. Um, I went with my sister and we saw them. It was either Christmas Eve or New Year's Eve in 81 or 82, I think, at the Roxy or the Whiskey. I can't remember which. It was so long ago. They had a residency in their early days at the Roxy, so high probability it was the Roxy. That was probably it. And I remember time thinking this was the first sort of American version of that second wave um and it was really great it was really fun um Mm -hmm. and i did i never uh i never i don't think i saw him again after that a friend of mine that i went to high school with called Susie, um was was tight with those guys and i used to see him kind of running around on their vespa Mm -hmm. um all over the West side and they're in the beach and stuff. And, um, yeah, super, super stylish. What do they look like driving around? What was that visual like? It was just rad because it, it felt like it was sort of out of, um, out of time in a way. Um, I remember kind of clocking it and thinking that's, that's punk rock, but, but it's something else, obviously. Mm -hmm. But I never really got too hung up on, you know, like just, you know, kind of the, the genre thing i never really felt uh felt like i was uh, you know i should hold back and, and not you know get into certain things um just because it wasn't punk right that you know when hard when hardcore got really popular it was sort of it got a bit stalinist and and that you know you couldn't you know you couldn't dare to have an abba record or something you know right or listen to metal or reggae or I, I did, but I never, I never really had that problem. So in 81, when you went to the show, what was the stuff you were into mostly? I was just getting into punk. Um, at that time I was listening to, you know, all the stuff that the seminal things that you have to kind of go work through to get to wherever you are in the, in the timeline. So I was, and then I was probably listening to the Clash and the Pistols and the Ramones and um, Black Flag and X um, and all that stuff. Um, but like I said, it was ne- I never felt like uh, you know I need- needed to uh, curate my my taste in 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 a any in any kind of rigid way. Um, I mean, it sounds like a brag. I'm sure most people don't feel like they have to do that, but there was a certain point where it just wasn't cool to listen to certain kind of music. And sure, I just, I always thought that was bullshit that, you know, of course I'm going to listen to Led Zeppelin and I'm going to listen to Bob Marley and, you know, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) It didn't seem right. That didn't seem punk to me because, you know, Joe Strummer and D Boone taught us that, you know, that's not how, that's not how we do it out here. When I got into music, when I was I, when I was growing up in like the like 
the late 80s, early 90s, I th- kind of thought of all underground music as one thing, even though it was stylistically all different. Yeah. So it would be like, I wouldn't, I, I didn't really parse it out like, this is punk, this is ska, this is a uh, funk or whatever. It was like, that's, there's the radio music and then there's the underground music. And I like the underground stuff. That was kind of how I approached it as a kid. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. Um, and, and I was, you know, and I was into AM radio hit golden you know hits as well like that's where i learned about hip-hop was from you know am radio sure how did that work how did you learn about hip-hop from am because they were playing you know when you know when sugar hill gang came out that's where that was getting spun like fucking every hour on the Mm -hmm. hour um and that was just on like you know my shitty transistor yeah, um, I can't even remember what the station was down there. Maybe like ninety three KHJ or something, but they were playing that stuff, and that's how that was, you know, my intro to to hip hop or rap music. I guess they called it back then. Sure. Were you going to a bunch of shows in the early eighties down down in uh, L.A.? Oh yeah, we were. I mean, we were lucky. I, I, you know, I'm 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 a man of a certain age, so I, you know, I was. I'm born in 66. So when, you know, in 1980, I'm 14 and starting to get, you know, kind of develop my own taste in stuff. And was you know, being in LA, we were, we were lucky because every big band that came through played LA. And we also had a thriving underground scene, you know, to, that we could explore every single weekend, you know, it was like, so when I was in 10th grade or, ninth and 10th grade it was like every you know everyone was playing every every weekend you could go see see one of those sst bands or channel three or whoever and then and then you had you know then you were you could also go to the forum and see acdc or whatever Mm -hmm. quick sidebar really quick have you noticed living in the bay now currently tours are kind of skipping over the bay area yes i noticed that just the other day um, I was looking at a, a, some a band put their routing up on Instagram, and I no- noticed that it was sort of like they might have even had a Sacramento show, and then yep. and then an LA show, but no- nothing in San Francisco or or Berkeley, which says a lot. Um, yeah, that's a drag. I wish that I wish it wasn't that way. It seems like the only the really major, 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 huge bands that come through. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll play like the chase center i guess now but i mean that's that said i've been go i've been god i've been going to a lot of shows i just went and saw um the linda lindas last night with the illuminati hotties yeah over at regency yeah that was great um i was at uh i, I went saw actually i went and saw um sad snack um at uh the kilowatt with oh yeah the, with the abrupters the other night as well band i think they're from back east the abruptors mm-hmm. buffalo that was great um yeah it just seems like there's been a lot a lot of shows and then you built a spill the other night right around the corner from me at the chapel so i don't know i you know if you look hard enough you can obviously you can find stuff to do here but i did notice um like a conspicuous absence of of sf shows for some bands that i thought would definitely hang here 
Yeah, some something that I've been noticing too. And I think you also kind of touched on, I mean, you just brought up three shows. I feel like any night of the week in the Bay, there can be, you know, two to three to four different things that you'll want to go do. And you have to kind of pick and choose. So it can be a harder market for bands to hit. Yeah, it's. I mean, I, I just didn't know what that meant because, I mean, obviously they've closed down a lot of, play, you know, Slims is closed now and um, mm. AEG bought the Great American. So, you know, it's getting kind of chopped up in that way. Yeah. Um, you know, when when I first moved up to San Francisco, there, there was there was so many different places you could play, even just in the Mission District. It was like there was five venues that you could that you could play any given night. And there was like a lot, a lot more going on in, in terms of like a local scene, at least. Mm-hmm. What was your favorite venue in the Bay that uh, is gone now? Oh, that's gone. Um, let's think about that. Actually, a lot of, I think my favorite spots are still around. I mean, I used to love the chameleon because it was kind of, um, it was so intimate and it was so close to my house Mm-hmm. It, it was like a 200 capacity dive bar on Valencia street at like 20th. Mm. Um, and just everyone seemed to play there. It was always very friendly and fun and yeah, tiny. So just a sweat yeah. box, a really intimate kind of sweat box. Um, I love that spot. I like slims too. What about that pole in the middle of the stage though? <laughs> that is a, that is a little <laughs> bit weird. Um, <laughs> But I saw, I just saw a couple of their last shows. I think I saw Agent Orange there one night. I saw Dinosaur like right before they, uh, before pandemic. And then obviously they just didn't come back after pandemic. But like a lot of my favorite spots in in San Francisco are still, still there. I love the Great American Music Hall uh, so much. Love that room. Um, The Regency was rad um last night uh and i and i just seen on why i'm just dropping band names that i've seen you guys to make it sound like sure it's fine i'm up on my shit but um (laughs) i've been i mean not having a job right now i'm definitely um i have more time to go out and see music and i get hooked up a lot you know and my my friends will come through town and just put me on the list so i really have no excuse not to go to these things um and i want to you know throw my support and buy the shirt and all that stuff um but I, and and you know I love the Fillmore and Gilman, um, yeah, all all great spots. And oh, and also the Kilowatt. Like I was talking about the Kilowatt, they just opened back up. Yeah. After, after not having live music for a million years, and Peter and Rick and Katie, these um, these kids opened it up and started doing music again. They put a great new sound system in there. It's fucking awesome over there. Love that That's spot. Great. And it's, it's literally like across the street from my house. So I just walk over and, and, um, and see a band on any given night. It's great. Yeah. That makes it, that makes it nice. Especially that, that convenience. Yeah. I think I was, uh, I didn't used to go to this many shows, um, back in the day, but I I think after that, that two year drought that we had of just being locked in, I, it must've, um, kind of reawakened you know, a love for going out and seeing bands live. Um, I think I, I was maybe taking it for granted and now I'm kind of catching up. Yeah. Yeah. And also if you, so you touched on this briefly, but if you get put on the guest list, yeah, you got to You got to buy the t-shirt, right? You got to, <laughs> you really, should. you really should. Yeah. 
Got to buy some merch. Yeah. So tonight, you're going to see Los Lobos tonight, right? Yes, I'm going to go see them tonight. Yeah, this has been a crazy week. I don't usually go to this many, but um, it just it just happened that uh, I know some of these people from from before, and, and I'm lucky. I'm lucky I get to go do this. So you're friends with um, Alfredo Ortiz from that band? Yeah, Fredo, totally. So yeah, he's come up on the podcast a few times because he was in a, a ska band called Yeska back in the nineties. Yes, totally. And um, but you knew him. You met him when he was in Beastie Boys, right? Yeah, he was he was um, playing with the Beastie Boys when we toured in. We did a tour with them in Sonic Youth, and a bunch of and and ba- and, and just a laundry list of every great nineties band. It was like Pavement and Beck and. Rancid and Bikini Kill. Everybody was on this show. This was a tour? What, what tour was this? Did it have a name? Uh, Somersault. It was called Somersault in Australia. And it was oh. in the winter of 95 to 90, into 96. So I guess their summer down there. Um, yeah, that was, that was crazy. That was an, an insane tour. Yeah, so he was playing with them then. And um, I think I must have met him around sometime, uh, just just knocking around in, in L.A. But yeah, Fredo is an amazing, an amazing musician, um, artist. He's an artist. Nice. <laughs> so I get to see Fredo tonight. We're gonna go to. Uh, we're gonna get dim sum before they they play. Nice. Just dropping names over here, you know. We're just dropping names. Just uh, yeah. It sounds pretty glamorous, doesn't it? Now that I'm talking out loud, it sounds pretty glamorous. But really, I'm just fucking. I'm just hole up in my my rent control apartment watching Beverly Hills 90210 on any given <laughs> night. When you see Fredo, just drop the. Just tell me, talk to the ska guys today. <laughs> have you have you spoken to him like on the on the podcast? Not yet. He's definitely on my list, but. I tagged him in a post once and he shared it. So he's aware of us. Yeah. That dude can play. That dude can play like he's ringing a bell and he's been everywhere and he knows everybody. So he'd he'd probably be a good, a good, uh, a good talker. Hell yeah. This year, uh, Jawbreaker was on tour and you guys took uh, Joyce Manor with you. Yes. I want to ask about that because, um, Barry Johnson, the singer is a friend of the show. He's a, he's a, he was a Scott kid growing up. So, and, and, and we're friends with him and, Obviously, Jawbreaker was a huge influence on his band. So I'm curious what that was like to, uh, you know, bring them on tour and what they were like. They were great. They they really went over, um, which, of course, they would because they have a huge they have a huge following. Um, and we were lucky yeah. to get them. Um, yeah. Yeah. We, it was funny because we I felt like right when the tour started, um it was just for some reason it really felt very uh, kind of it was kind of crazy. It was felt like like frying pan into the fire. Like we were just boom, here you go, you're on tour now. Um, so we didn't even really get a chance. Like I think we spoke to them that first night and just kind of intro- everyone kind of introduced each other and said hi and um, and then we were just off off working and um, there was less there was a like a lot the the tour had a lot of really long drives. Um, and sometimes we would fly to the next show because it was a two night overnight or something. And I don't know how those guys were getting around, but it was a pretty crazy, um, tour, but we, as, as it went along, um, obviously we got, we got to have some more hang time and stuff with those guys. And 
And then I ran into him um, flying back at the end of the tour and got to hang out with them at the airport, which was probably the longest time that we were all just kind of ch- sitting around chopping it up, just waiting <laughs> for our, our flights. Um, but yeah, those guys were great. Um, I didn't know that. I, I didn't know that he was a, a Scott kid. But I mean, you know, I mean, we shouldn't be surprised, right? I mean, no. even like I was thinking about the the name of the podcast. I mean, like, like the very first thing that most anyone would probably bring up is like, does Scott need defending? You know, like what? Who's uh? I know that I know the people. I know that it was kind of a punchline for a while. Yeah, yeah. In that, that mm-hmm. kind of third or fourth wave, however you want to call it, like people would shit on it and uh, scoff if you had horns in your band, but. Um, Scott Scott's a big a big kid can can take care of themselves. <laughs> <laughs> I think of a certain if you came from a certain generation, you saw Ska uh, ascend into the mainstream and then plummet pretty hard, and then sort of become viewed. I think I think part of the problem is that people sort of viewed Ska in a very narrow lens for a while. Like if they were from that era, that's like oh, mm-hmm. all Ska is silly. All Ska is um, from Orange County. You know, it, it's sort of like these things that are not true about ska. They're only true of like one one variety of ska. When in fact, ska encompasses so much. Yeah, it was. I mean, the same could be said for uh, what people call emo, I guess, too, because that that was that was that was huge for a while, and then that became the mm-hmm. the the punching bag and the and the punchline or whatever. And then it kind of came back again kind of came back around and which is kind of what it looks like is happening with ska now people aren't don't treat it like it's a guilty pleasure but they're like well yeah this is what this is this is fun i like to dance in defense of ska will return in a moment hey everybody it's barry from the what podcast hey it's russ hey it's brian and we are giving away two tickets to bonnaroo 2024 these are ga plus and they include camping russ how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. So when you guys came back... Um, your first gig, well, your first main gig was uh, Riot Fest in 2017 as the headliner. Right. But I, I know you did a few warm-up gigs before that, right? I know you played Ivy Room, which is in the East Bay. Yeah, we did the Ivy Room um, for our old sound man's birthday party just to sort of warm up and see if we could play. And and then we did... Um, <laughs> Then we did Riot Fest, and then we came back and we played a bunch, like a series of smaller um, SF shows. Like we did Rickshaw and Bottom of the Hill and Great American. Um, just kind of hit our favorite spots. Bottom. I love Bottom, too. I didn't mention Bottom. I love going down to Bottom. Where does the Gilman show fit into there? Oh, that might have been a bit later because I think that we tried to get a show that first year back, but they were they were booked I think there was a ska show that night, actually. <laughs> um, and they didn't want, they felt bad because I think it was a band that was touring through and they didn't want to bump anybody because we, we wanted to do it kind of last minute and um, not do a big, make a bit like, you know, just kind of do a, 
announce it the day before and go play like a secret yeah. deal almost. Um, and they couldn't accommodate it. So um, we just pushed it back. I think we ended up doing it in 2018, like the next, the following year, I think. Mm-hmm. Which show were you more nervous to play? Um, Riot Fest or that very first show at the Ivy Room? I, I think I'm, I'm pretty nervous before every show that we play. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was certainly a lot, a different, um, vibe, if I can use that word, doing Riot Fest just because there were so many people and it was our first big, you know, whatever coming out party. Um, so that, that was kind of, that, that had, that was kind of intense. Like I definitely took a long nap before we, we got on stage for that one. But I, yeah, I get I get freaked out just playing any any show. I'm I'm always trying to calm down. That's why I take that's why I sleep before we play. How long do you need from when you sleep to when you get behind the drums? Um like a half an hour. Oh, that's it? Like I mean, I don't and I it's a disco nap. Really, it's just like I just lay down and just try to yeah. close my eyes and sometimes I'm not even sure if I not if I get all the way out. Right. But I just try to um I don't know, just kind of it's just kind of centering or something, relaxing and get mm-hmm. your heart beating slower. Um yeah, it's just something I've always done. I did it back in the day too. I, I, I talked about this with somebody recently on a podcast. I think, yeah, it's a weird. And they were surprised. I think they were surprised. Like you take a nap before every show. I was like, yeah, I do. It's like it's my ritual. It's just how I, it's how I cope with a because I have a, you know, like all drummers, I have restless leg and 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 a mm-hmm. and a racing mind. I think. Back when you guys were an active band, you guys didn't play anything as big as Riot Fest, did you? No, no, never. That was a lot of people. Um, we had never done, we had never played any of any, um, like even though, even those festival shows that we did with, um, with the Beasties and Sonic Youth, even though I, we were, we were the first band of the day. So there would just be a couple of thousand people eventually by the time, you know, there might've been 30,000 people there when Beastie Boys take the stage, but we were just kind of playing to people that were filing in. And when we went and did that run with Nirvana in 93, we played a a set of shows with them in the Midwest and Southwest. And those were like, I don't think those were, they weren't arenas. They weren't like stadiums. They were smoke. They were what they call, what do they call that? They were like sheds there. They call them sheds, which is like bigger than a theater. Um, mm-hmm. but not quite like a, I mean, we might've done one hockey arena, but they weren't, there weren't that many people, not nearly. No. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, like, yeah, that, that Ivy room show playing to like 50 of our, of our friends was just as nerve wracking as playing to a bunch of people. Cause mm-hmm. I have, you know, there's like that, a, 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 an artist, um, who works on comic books once told me of that theory of, um, one, two, few, many. Do you know that? That no. What's this? It's like the reason why they they just give uh, com uh, like uh, cartoon characters whatever four four fingers because there's you know mm-hmm. there's one 
you have two of something and then you have three, a few, right? One, two, few, and then many. So after those first three, just, it's like a lot, it's just too many to deal with. So I think, I think of that, like looking out at, you know, a shitload of people, it's just kind of, it's almost like the uncanny Valley or something. There's just like, Mm, yeah. When really, you know, playing on the floor at a house party, right with people right in front of you might be just as nerve wracking as a sea of humanity. <laughs> yeah. Maybe even more nerve wracking. Cause you can actually pick out individual faces. Yeah. Cause they might be, they might be able to punch you right in the nose if they don't like, what they <laughs> don't like what they're hearing. They just go and fall off and clock you. It must've been a real trip though, to return after so many years and you're the headlining act of riot fest. I mean, not there's not a lot of bands story where they have that happen to them where they they've gained that much momentum and that much popularity in the time that they're broken up yeah it was it was strange it was it was surreal and um and also you know sort of validating and you know vindicating or triumphant there was definitely a, a feeling of um uh, someone likening it likened it to um like you know your team you know your kind of underdog team mm-hmm. winning the, the the whole thing winning the pennant or the world series like it was very it was kind of it was very rocky or something yeah, <laughs> yeah sure yeah it wasn't lost yeah it wasn't lost on us because you know when we would go play our our you know we were playing to maybe one or 2000 people at the most, at our most popular mm-hmm. when we were a band, um, you know, just playing club like clubs. So that, that was insane that tw- then we, then we all grow up 20 years and then, and then turn out and, and play this massive thing. It was, um, yeah, you couldn't have written it or, or no one would have believed it really. If you, if you did write it, no one would have believed it. They would have been like, nah, it was uh it was insane. Yeah. So so back thirty years ago when you're at Fantasy Studios recording, did you did you guys have any awareness at that time that you'd be creating something that would be so meaningful to people like thirty years later? I think I did and and only because um I yeah, I had to have like I I couldn't really I have to operate thinking that there's consequences to the, to, to working on something like that. Like, yeah, you have to have enough and it's not, I wouldn't call it ego because, um, cause I didn't think that it would happen, but I think you have to go into it with that kind of intensity where you, where, you know, you're going to put something down. You want it, you, you know, you want it to last. You want to think that what you're doing is going to be meaningful, at least to you, like maybe not to the yeah. whole world, but at least to you. Um, so I, I thought that, I mean, I didn't think we were going to be the, the quote next green day, which is what obviously everyone was looking for at that time. But I knew that I knew that what we had done was going to be good and that I would be able to stand by it as an old man. I thought it was, I thought it was really good. And I think that's just a, I think that's just a kind of, uh, result of 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 having the audacity to to want to try to be great. I'm not saying we were great or are great, but you have to 
if you're going to spend time doing something like this, like you better be in your, you better be in your favorite band and, and want to make it perfect and want to make it great. Otherwise you're just, you know, go be in a cover band or something (laughs) for real. So I don't know. Yeah. I think I just, I, I think I just probably went into it with the audacity. Like I just had the audacity to think that that we're, what we were doing was going to matter in some way to some people, and the fact that it eventually did was cool. But honestly, I wasn't. You know, I wasn't betting on it. Yeah. Was the reunion a product of several years of of it trying to happen? How long were you guys all actively trying to make this happen? Well, we weren't, um, and I think that that worked on our um that worked for us like we we weren't we weren't really trying um to we weren't being aggressive about about like yeah let's do this thing come back and you know cash in or some shit like that it was more like we were getting offers from um you know we get like every year like we hear from Coachella or some other some other kind of festival thing that um, they would ask. They'd ask us to to do a reunion show or whatever. And I, I, you know, I'd I'd get the I'd get that call, and I'd call Blake and Chris. And Blake was doing Jets, and Chris was doing uh, Mutoid Men or Shorebirds or whatever he was doing. And I was doing other stuff, and so it never really, it it never was really a a true consideration. Um, and it was only it was only way later that you know as our popularity um grew like our posthumous popularity grew that that like the you know they keep coming back and they'd be like offering us more and more money every year and then we'd be like nah um and all along i you know i i'd have done it for less money but mike at riot fest finally called up and said like you know he 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 basically was like, look, we're, we're, we'll back up the truck for you and do whatever you want. And you can, you know, you can curate some of the, some of this festival with us and bring some bands that you like. And it all, and it just timed out that way. So Blake wasn't doing a band and, and Chris wasn't too busy and I was ready to do something. And we were all kind of in a weird place in our lives that it just, it just seemed like the right thing to do. It was a good it was good because it gave us all something to look forward to, something to work on for a whole year or however long we took. Um, yeah, it just, it just, I don't know. It was just, it was just the serendipity, you know, we, but we weren't really, we weren't going out and tr- trying to field offers and we didn't have representation. We had no one speaking for us. It was trying to hustle and make this happen. It just happened kind of organically. And when we saw, that it was going to be riot fest that seemed like the perfect place to do it because that's where you know the replacements did it and um and and you know i like we like that festival a lot was the intention to keep playing after the festival or did that come after you played um i think that we were hoping that we could we could keep at it but I think it was such an in, it se- it was such a seemingly insurmountable thing that we were working towards that we really that was like 
the our eyes on the prize was just right yeah, like yeah. let's just get through riot fest and if we could survive that and not make total fucking fools out of ourselves like <laughs> then maybe we continue doing this because like we could have gotten up there and shit the bed you know it might have been we could have been terrible um it's not like a it's not like shooting fish in a barrel you know just three people up on stage like trying to make that big a noise it's like (laughs) we might have not gone over um but i think we were you know we were you know we had a great show. It was, it was super, you know, we got, we definitely got tighter after Riot Fest that with uh, two years of touring, we were a pretty well-oiled machine. We were still a little bit raw at Riot Fest, but it was just, it, it had a definite, it had a different kind of energy just because of the, um, just cause it was so intense, you know? Yeah. Yeah. How much practicing did you guys do leading up to it? I think we probably did like nine months of practicing, but that's not me. That that doesn't mean going in three times or four times a week for five hours or whatever, like we used to do when we were maniac 20 year olds. Um, yeah. Because we all live in three different cities. We, we would have to just kind of book like every month we would book a week um, in San Francisco and our friend, mm-hmm. Sean Biggs, um, who was working out of this, uh, a studio downtown set us up. Um, he totally set us up for success. I mean, like he had all, like all of our equipment was in there and we had the time blocked out. Um, we were in our own little world in this, uh, little studio, no lights, no visitors. Mm -hmm. So we did that like once a month for, I think nine months, we would go for a week at a time and play every day for as long as we could. Um, so yeah, we were pretty, we were pretty ready. what do you guys do for food when you were locked down like that? Were you ordering out or did you guys go out to eat? Um, we'd go to what's that burger place in, uh, at the movie theater. We'd eat there a lot. Burger place at the, at the Metreon at the, at the Metreon. Yeah. It's on the outside inside. It's on the outside. It's a chain. It's like a local chain. I can't, I can't remember. Is it the one that has those like that soft serve sign out front? Yes. Uh, yeah. I can't think of what it's called though. Yeah. We'd go in there. We'd get like, um, or we'd order. Yeah. Or we'd, we'd have food delivered, you know, when we wanted to eat well, we'd get some, uh, get some salad, some sensible salads in our bellies. <laughs> <laughs> Super duper burger. Super duper burger. That's it. <laughs> totally. <laughs> totally. No, they, they, yeah, we were getting like, we were getting like chicken sandwiches there and stuff. Amazing. Um, but there's, yeah, there's no shortage of food. It's just San Francisco, man. Come on. Hell yeah. What's the best spot to get a burrito in the mission? Um, I would, I would say uh, Cancun, but they have the yeah. worst, they have the worst chips though. Oh yeah. How you feel about, uh, Pancho Villa. Uh, I like El Toro, but I like their 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 little sister store better. It's closer to me, and I think it's and I think it's better. Yeah, even though they have the exact same menu, I defy them yeah. to do an A B taste test between Pancho Villa and El Toro. Oh, the grill's going to make a difference, though. Yeah, they got their shit. It's all about how the grill's seasoned. And- yes, yes. What's the worst taqueria in the mission? Um. It's that no name one that uh, is on the corner. I, you know, I don't want to out anybody right now. <laughs> I, <don't wanna laughs> I think I know which one. The one by the BART station? Shh. Shh. 
no talking. We don't want about taquerias. I don't want to start any shit, dude. I gotta, dude, I gotta fucking represent in my neighborhood, man. I don't want to. <laughs> I don't want to even. You do, you do. I gotta say though, East Oakland, East Oakland's come up as far as burritos. I would take a burrito from East Oakland over the Mission Burrito at this point. Really? Okay. Yep. I'll fight. We can fight. <laughs> we can throw down. Full disclosure: Adam lives in Alameda. Yeah. So. Okay. Love the flea market over there. You know, I've never been. Go there. Yeah, I've lived here since 2010. No, 2009, and I've never gone to the flea market. You're fucking up, man. You got to get there. I fucked up bad. I got to go. Get all sorts of stuff. Right. So, Adam, are you familiar with the band Jawbreaker? Of course. Oh, yeah. Oh, well, you're yeah. asking the other Adam. No, no, I'm, I'm not asking <laughs> yeah. you. I'm asking the other. <laughs> you know I know who they are. <laughs> yeah, totally. I have the I have the seven inch. Hell yeah. Yeah, that was what a great that was such a great idea. Yeah. Do you know Brian Moss, the, the guy behind the project? Yes. Yeah, that was genius. I thought and I mean you might want to explain no one's gonna know what we're talking about unless you really <laughs> spell it out. J A H Breaker. Yeah. It's Brian Moss's Reggae Jawbreaker tribute band. Yes. They put out a seven inch on Silver Sprocket and I think they played two or three shows. Yeah, they made shirts and everything. Yep. I had a shirt for a while. I don't know what happened to it. Pretty great. And what was it? And it was all like puns. Like they would do covers reggae style, but kind of switch the words around to, to be about smoking dope and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And then I think like, then they did a release where it was very San Francisco location focused too. Cause it was very, very weird. Like in joke, I think. Well, I mean, I think, I think that those shows did pretty good. Like I, I, I remember that it, it was kind of, they kind of made a splash. Like people were into it. Yeah. I mean, they had, I mean, what's the, what's the lowest run you could, you could do for, for making a seven inch, like probably like 200 or something. I think they did more than that though. I mean, there might've been 500 people that were in on that joke. That's a lot of people to be on an inside joke. Yeah. I, uh, I found an interview that Brian did about the project on vice. And he said, that one of the main motivating factors for us was the awareness of how uptight and nearly religious some Jawbreaker fans are. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and he's a Jawbreaker fan, <laughs> so he's he's poking fun at his his own people. I like to think that our, our that our people are are have a sense of humor. I, I think most people. I mean, the, when I posted about it our, on our socials, people were loving it, and um. And kind of, and like that Jawbreaker reunion band, people love that shit. Mm-hmm. Like, what a funny idea to call your your band Jawbreaker reunion. I'm not familiar with that one. Yeah, yeah. They just called their band Jawbreaker reunion. Yeah, so that's what it said on the flyer, and then you know maybe a couple people would show up and be like, "What? This isn't you know <laughs> great idea, right?" That's genius. Yeah, we thought about. Um, I can't remember where we, we were thinking about doing a someone was talking about doing a secret show with them but actually playing before them oh man be pretty great yeah yeah okay so speaking of silver sprocket i want to talk a little bit about the uh, event that i met you at where dan ozzy was reading i bought your book that night by the way right didn't i buy or did you give it no you paid me you you handed me a 20 dollar bill it was very nice of you i did didn't i yeah yeah okay but the funny thing that happened was while Dan was on, was talking, you kind of, you came in and um, he didn't know you were there. Right. 
Well, I don't, I don't really know. I don't know, Dan. I just, he sent me the, uh, a couple of books to give to the guys, the book that he wrote, Sellout, right? Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and then I heard that he was going to be in town. I was like, oh, I'll go, I'll go check that out. Um, it wasn't like, a, I didn't, I didn't mean it for, to, for it to be such a, like a gotcha thing, you know? But the funny thing is, is he, he, he talked at length about how much, how, what an important band John Bricker were for him. And I think he felt like a little kind of embarrassed a little like, oh my God, I didn't know there was a member of Jawbreaker in the audience while I was saying all this stuff. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I got, I, I, I'll admit it. I did get a little bit uncomfortable um, when he was, he was being so uh, effusive. Is that the right word? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I was just kind of chilling. I, you know, I was just kind of, I, I come in. Another thing is, is I came in late, like an asshole. I came in late and everyone was sitting down already. So I, I ended up kind of just milling around the stacks, looking at comic books and listening to what he was saying because there were no more, there were no more chairs. But I, you know, I appreciated that. That was, uh, that was cool. I was like, I was like tickled to hear him tell his stories and, and talk about it. And um, yeah. And then, and then we met afterwards. It was funny. Mm-hmm. And it turns out we had people in common too, so it was you know small world. Yeah, punk rock's a small town, right? Yeah, definitely. Yes, totally, totally. But yeah, we yeah then we then we got you you showed me your book and we got to talking about this. And I'm sorry it's taken this long for me to get my shit together, but I've had my head kind of up my own ass for the last hour long trying to trying to work on these tours and stuff. Oh no, it's all that's that's fine. But it's cool. It's cool. We got to do this. But I was made me. It made me kind of rack my brain about my like, you know, my like my my sordid Scott past. <laughs> and I was <laughs> thinking about it, and um, and just kind of going through my records and stuff. And I and I and it just made me. I, another thing that made me think of was like, I don't know how you guys have your. I, I just have all of my records alphabetically. Like I don't have them chopped up into into the genres or anything like that or kinds of music do you how do you guys do it here's what i do i've i have two of those uh six slot or right now eight slot uh ikea shelves that fit records yes i have two of those in my studio and the top two right underneath the record player right hand side is what i'm currently listening to yes. that is like chill music Left-hand side is what I'm currently listening to that is heavier, faster music, and everything else is just a mess. Okay, so you don't have them all. You don't have them all like kind of di- – I have them diced up like – well, and how about you? Uh, I, I, I don't have a record vinyl collection anymore. I went, I'm like strictly digital, but when I did have a vinyl collection, it was alphabetical. I didn't, uh, I didn't divide them up in any other way, just alphabetical, just because I just want to be able to find what I want to find. Did you get rid of all your records in, in one lot? Did you give them away or sell them to one person? I owed a friend some money, and so I gave him my record collection to make it so we were square. Wow. How many records was that? God, it was a lot. <laughs> yeah, was there remorse giving those away? Were you, were, you, were you gutted or were you okay with it? No, because I actually like... I kind of have transitioned to, I just sort of like owning MP3s. I know it's, I'm, I'm not quite into Spotify, but I kind of like owning MP3s and having a big database on my computer of all my music. Right. It's kind of a weird thing because I know a lot of musicians are very sentimental about the physical record. And I don't necessarily feel that, although I do like, you know, records are cool because they're works of art. But I, don't know, I just, 
I, I can kind of do that with MP3s. I think I'm 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 an anomaly a little bit. Does it not fuck with the way you listen to records though? Because I find that like there, I have a this big blank spot in my collection that's um, CDs, right? Like the years that I started buying CDs, which was I don't know when that was. When would that have been? Like the early '90s to like 2000 or something. Like there's a big gap where I wasn't buying records. Um, and, and now that I don't have a CD player in my car that used to have a CD player is gone. CDs are useless. So all the CDs are like in my basement now. Um, those are all available digitally. And of course I do, I, I have Spotify and all that shit, but the, the way I listen to music now is so, it's so passive that mm. and with everything at my fingertips with the you know the history of music at my fingertips i find myself listening to the same fucking 14 songs every <laughs> single day does it do you not do you not have that problem no because i kind of have a i have a, a very complicated and most likely has to do with uh ocd system of how i listen to music <laughs> okay so, and it involves lists it's very very neurotic but it does make me listen to all your, kinds your, of music. your compulsion your your ocd is making you is necessarily okay it's 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 okay for for digital consumption yes it works it works for digital stuff it works yeah <laughs> maybe even maybe even better because it's quicker you don't have to get up and flip the record and stuff yeah I still have all my records and they're all just, they're here. All the, all the, there's the stuff I'm listening to is under, is in the cabinet underneath where the, where the record player is. Everything else is over in these, this big um, shelf and on my wall. And those are just done. Like there's just 12 inches alphabetically. There's 10 inches alphabetically and seven inches alphabetically. So I don't have anything chopped up by genre. It's like, whatever. It just, as it so i was just looking through all of my records and i i just dug out like like when i dj and stuff like i always play um i always play the uh ghost town 12 inch when i whenever i Hell it's yeah. like always like the last song of the night is ghost town but then i you know i'm i'm i seem to be missing a lot of stuff actually is what i found um what are you what are you missing? I'm missing I'm missing a couple of specials records and I don't know I think my kids probably stole them cuz my kids went through my stack and and kind of robbed a bunch of stuff that they were um getting into and um you know what's mine is theirs anyway I just hope that they I hope that they turn up but like I have I have like not, not one David Bowie record anymore my kids have all the David Bowie records I think I had every single 70s Bowie record when I had a collection yeah, you can't not, right? Yeah. I think that, God, probably, but Bowie was probably one of the very first records I ever bought with my own money, I think. Oh, yeah? Which record? I think it was Pinups. Pinups, the what the covers record. <laughs> yeah, what a, what a weird record to, to dive in on Bowie with. Oh, no, you know what? No, no, that was my dad's. My dad was, my dad's cool. My dad had a great record collection, which probably explains my my kind of broad, musical taste because he had all the you know he had he had bowie and but he also had all the beatles and stones records and he had weird records like you know he had mothers of invention records and um, and elvis records and 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 miles davis and john coltrane so it's like that's how i kind of i came up i think i stole i i stole pinups from him and I, that's how i learned how to play drums i learned how to play drums basically with pinups 
and like Clash and Go Go's records. Um, I lost I lost track of what I was saying. I can't remember. Maybe it might have been Scary Monsters. Maybe does that make sense? No, it might. It might time. Out. That might be a little bit. Later. That might be a little bit later. Yeah, a lot of the a lot of records that I came up with, I got handed down to me by my older sister, and then. I stole from my dad's record collection. So like talking heads and all the punk stuff and X and all that stuff, my sister kind of bequeathed to me. And then the kind of classic rock and jazz and stuff I got from my dad. What does your sister do now? My sister's an artist. My sister is a singer in a band and uh, like a fashion designer and a fine artist and a, a performance artist. She's um sick. She's uh, called Kembra Fowler. You can look her up. K-E-M-B-R-A Fowler. She's in a band called The Voluptuous Horror of Karen Black. Um, They've been playing in New York since the, God, since the late 80s or early 90s. Kind of a glam punk band. Mm -hmm. Um, But she's, she's, um, she has like a, it's kind of hard to, to pigeonhole like what exactly it is that she does. Cause she does so many different kind of things. Like she has a, she has a collaboration right now of some, some clothing designs that she did with Rick Owens. Um, and she's had, you know, her fine art in, in at the Whitney, um, you know, she had a Whitney Biennial. And so she's kind of a, you know, she's like my cool older sister, artist, musician lady. That's really cool because I mean, usually you hear about you know older siblings passing down music to you, and then you'll ask, "Oh, what happens to what happened to your sibling?" And they're like, "Oh, they don't, they don't really like like music anymore." They got a straight job. Yeah, they got a straight job. It's cool to hear that your sister like went for it. No, my sister went for it in the big in the biggest way. Like, she, my sister's a, like a true art. Like she, that's how she makes her living. She's an artist, and it's feast or famine. You know, like it's yeah. it's like either she's doing great or it's like she's struggling like everybody else but she's been in it forever which and she's not getting out anytime soon so she's she's definitely the the real deal lifer yeah and your dad your dad was a professional surfer right my dad well i have i have when i say my dad like when i speak about my dad i'm either talking about my my birth father is that how you say that my sure biological father maybe that's what i meant biological father my is is yeah surfer and then my stepdad, who's been around since I was like seven years old, he, um, he's just like a a, a philosopher. <laughs> he's a, he had the, he had the great record collection. But my dad, um, my dad, uh, my biological father, Fred, he was um, one of those original uh, South Bay surfers from the fifties. You know, he surfed with. Um, Lance Carson and 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 um, God, everybody, Dewey Weber. Um, he was in uh, Bruce Brown movies uh, before um, the movies that he made right before Endless Summer. So my dad's in Slippery When Wet. We'll be right back after this. Hey everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. 
call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. Going back to Jawbreaker, um, you, you've kind of been the band's archivist, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that something you were doing during the run, or is that sort of something you took on after the band broke up? I, I always just kind of ended up with the stuff. Um, you know, I had the uh, I had the tapes, I had the two inch tapes, and the the mix down master tapes, and I ended up just kind of saving our posters and flyers just for my personal collection, just for, you know, and I kept a journal and, you know, I'd, I'd like, I'd steal a camera out on tour and take pictures. Um, and I kept all those. So yeah, I just, I guess it's, it was just sort of something I did. I wasn't, I wasn't really thinking about it. I certainly wasn't thinking about it. Um, I didn't have the foresight to like save all my negatives and to box everything up perfectly and to catalog things. I wasn't that kind of archivist. Um, yeah. I was more just like, well, this will be cool to have someday. And I just sort of take pictures and roll up the posters and throw them into my basement. That that's just kind of who, who I was, but it turned, it turns out, I guess that's called being an archivist. Like I didn't know that that was really a thing, but that's what I've been. I've, I've been, I've been called that before and I'll take it. Because I, I, yeah, I think I think that's that's exactly what I've been doing. Again, with no with no real um, end goal, but thinking mm-hmm. somewhere in the back of my mind that maybe someone would would give two shits about this stuff at some point, and yeah, had the audacity to think that, and then it turns out that it that came in handy because people started asking around. And, um, you know, wrote a book or made a movie about it. So I'm glad I, I'm glad I held on to all that shit. And I'm that, that really came in handy when the, the documentary was made, right? Yeah. I mean that everything that they, that turns up in, in there, that's not a, a brand new, um, talking head interview is, is really probably from archive, my pile of shit that I kept. <laughs> Is there anything that you you archived that you uh, lost that you can't find now? Um, is there anything that's lost? Like I have like a, I have like a very specific picture in my collection of stuff. Oh, just I in your, in your mind, that, and you know it's somewhere, and I know it existed. I it was a it was a Polaroid. Yeah, and I no longer have it. Is there anything like that for you? I probably do, but there's so there was so much stuff that um, I think I just forgot. There's nothing that I'm really wondering. Oh yeah, where is that fucking thing? I have it's pretty much all there in our storage space or in my in my closet. Really, that's great. Um, that but there was a time that I that I kind of stopped care, like like saving the flyers, which I'm kind of bummed about. Like when we first started out, like our first national tour i i saved every little thing every little ticket stub and flyer and handbill and photograph and then when when it became like how we made our living and we were out so much i i kind of slowed down with that mm-hmm. so i wouldn't have 
photo. Like I don't have, I don't think I have one photo from our run with Nirvana. Um, you would Jeez. think that I, you would think that I would have been happy to, to shoot all that stuff. Um, but I didn't, I probably just wanted to not feel like, you know, I probably was just trying to play it cool and act like we belong there or something. <laughs> it wasn't like trying to get a picture with everything. Like, you know, this is back before we had cameras in our phone. This is when I, you'd have to go out and get a throwaway camera or, or a point and shoot or something and then get the shit developed three weeks later. Um, but yeah, no, I, it's pretty complete. It's pretty complete. And a lot of the stuff didn't end up in the, in the movie. And, you know, I, I, someone asked if I wanted to do like a coffee table book or something with all of my personal photographs and, um, and, uh, you know, just like all of the archive that I've saved. But I think I, I like the idea of doing that, but I, I don't want to do it until we're definitely like not a band anymore. That, that's something I think that should be done like as a, a epilogue or something after the things all run its course. Mm-hmm. So, okay. So the roots of Jawbreaker start in like the eighties in New York and you, you move to LA, but it takes a little while to sort of get the lineup that you guys are the three piece lineup. Yeah. I read a story that you had a guy named John Liu that sing for you and you realized Blake was going to be the singer. So you, did you make, you made the bass player, you made your bass player kick him out? Chris. Yeah. <laughs> John John sang for us for a, a good while. John John sang in a band called Magnolia Thunder Pussy in the in the eighties, um, and they got signed to SST Records. But I think that um, I don't know one of their guys they went off to school or something, and they they didn't end up following through. They ended up breaking up. But they were a great band that we used to go see, and that me and Blake used to go. You know, we were in a band called Red Harvest in high school, and we would play with them. So John was someone that we knew from from way back when. So we yeah we started playing with Chris and we got John to sing. First there was a we had a singer in New York called Ray Lugo, who was um, this hardcore kid from the Lower East Side that we met. Um, Ray's still at it actually right now. He's got a, he's got a great band that tours all over the all over the world. Um, but uh, yeah, then we got John we got John in there and and. Um, I think I think we we had booked a show and John missed the show like he he just didn't show up or something and he was doing school he was in school trying to finish up getting his degree and I just think that it was we we tried to we we wrote a song with the Blake saying and it, it just it seemed like it would be okay if if he took over those duties so we, you know, terrified because John's our friend. We didn't know how to how to deal with telling him this, and and Chris ended up breaking the news, and and um, yeah, it was ugly and it was shitty. Um, but now we're all we're all friends again, and John was my drum tech at Riot Fest, and remains one of my closer friends <laughs> to this day. Nice. Oh yeah, we were do, we were you know we were scrambling. We were we didn't know exactly what we were doing. We started out as an instrumental band, and then we you know we were try, kind of trying singers, and it just um, it wasn't really clicking. And the only time it really clicked was when we just stopped and and just like how about just the three of us and just let let Blake try it out. And it was clear that he was such a good writer 
um, that it just made sense to do it that way. So you did uh, you toured with Econo Christ in uh, 1990. Mm-hmm. It was called the Fuck Ninety Tour. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so you're still in LA at this point. Um, how did you connect with them? Were, did they play down there with you or something, or did you come up to the Bay and play? Um, I'm not sure if we played with Econo Christ before that tour, but we certainly met. Them. Oh, really? I, we, I, eh, I could look it up right now. I have, like, I have all our shows written down, but. Um, off the top, maybe we did. Maybe we did. Maybe we played Gilman with them or something um, on one of our many trips up the coast. We do that trip a lot. When we were kind of based in L.A. for a while, we would drive up a lot and play uh, Gilman and Covered Wagon and Marsugis and San Jose and maybe get up to Chico or whatever. Um, but, yeah, I mean, Blake... Blake booked that first tour in 1990 we, where we, that one where we did like 50 something shows in as many days. It was like a crazy tour. We a lot just played every single day, sometimes twice a day. Like we do an in-store and then go play that night. But we, yeah, we did a, we did a good long run with, with Econo Christ on a tour and became, became tight with them. Um, and it was, you know, it might've seemed incongruous because Econo Christ is like a blistering hardcore band. And we were a little, um, we were a little poppier than that. You know, we were like, not like an indie rock band, but just not, you know, just whatever it is, whatever the fuck it is that we do. I I don't know what you call it. I guess they called it emo later, but whatever, whatever it was. Um, But, you know, we got along with those guys and they were cool. And they were, um, they were part of that. uh, They were like ex little rockers from, uh, from Arkansas. And that's a great that's a great um, scene that's always been really supportive of uh, of our band. Like we always made a stop over in Little Rock. Um, yeah, so we were, we got tight with those guys, and and we just kept on, and um, yeah, we played a bunch with them. Great band. I've heard I've heard it said that a lot of the shows weren't great on that tour, and it was a it was just overall rough. Yeah, well, that's. You know, it was our first tour, so of course, sometimes you show up and there'd be like four people there, or else you're just playing to you know the other band, or or there's a bunch of fucking skinheads there, or whatever, whatever it is. Whatever you know, we were just paying dues, like we were having the time of our lives, uh, or is it the times of our life? However you say that. Um, <laughs> So yeah, it was like, you know, it was amazing just being in a van and, and eating at, uh, dinner at, at, uh, circle K in the, at four in the morning, just all that stuff was romantic and fun. And it was just a big adventure. So it, it wasn't as grueling as all that. We were just, you know, when you're in your early twenties, like you, you don't give a shit. You're just have, out there having fun. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't look, I don't actually look back at that and go like, Oh man, we really had a rough, like. Oh, but woe is me. We had to read books in the van and not look at our phones. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it was like, to me, it was like a total adventure. We were like, you know, driving at, in the middle of the night and looking, you know, looking for UFOs or whatever it was that we were doing, <laughs> you know, just like we, we, were, we were, it was fun. So it was, yeah, it was rough, but like you have to do, every band has to have a tour like that. Yeah. We just were, we were just out. Grumpster was just opening for us 
um, mm. with the, on those Joyce Manor shows. And and Grumpster was a great band from the East Bay. Um, and those guys were like, you know, they they had the whole thing. Like they they you know their van broke down and they had to rent a U-Haul and someone got sick one night and they and I'm like, oh man, you guys are that's fucking rough. Are you, how are you guys dealing? And they were like, what? This is fucking. This is a gas. We're having we're having a great time. <laughs> yeah. Things are different when you're younger. Yeah, doing this kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, if it, you know, if it, if if we had a tour like our first tour right now, that would be that would be rough. That would be you know that would be a tragedy. It would have been sad. You would have felt bad for these fifty something year old dudes. You'd be like, oh man, sorry. But you know, when you're 22 or whatever, it's like, yeah, go drill them, get out there. So can you kind of explain what leads up to you relocating to San Francisco? San Francisco is always just one of those places that, uh, you know, they kind of welcomed us with open arms and they booked us. It was hard to get a show down in L.A. And we found, you know, the Gilman people were very supportive. Um, we made friends up here, made friends with Lance Hahn from J Church and Cringer, made friends with the Sam I Am guys and ended up doing a bunch of shows with with them and you know coming from la me and blake coming from la you know san francisco is just right up the street 400 and something miles it didn't seem like that big a deal to move up here but yeah it was just it just seemed like an easier place to live cheaper place to live um and there was clubs that we knew were going to book us and labels up here that we thought we could count on to to put our records out like and that became those guys at uh, Revolver, uh, Tupelo, and Communion Records, and Shredder Records, and all those people were super supportive early on, um, and we weren't really getting that kind of response down. It was hard for us to book shows in L.A. Sometimes they'd try to make you pay to play, and you know, when we were trying to get back at it, it was like it was tough because it was all that kind of Sunset Strip. Um, kind of new that 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 third wave glam glam metal that came came through. So there wasn't a whole lot going on until until you know Anti Club and um Raji's and those kind of places started. And and when Jabberjaw came came back around in the early when when they opened up in the early nineties, it became a little bit easier for like an underground or a punk band or some weird band to, to have a place to play. Um, but yeah, LA, LA being mine and Blake's home was, you know, we certainly, by the time we moved to San Francisco, we would go down every chance we could to play down there. Um, so it remains, it remained kind of like our, our home in a way. Did you feel like a full fledged part of the Gilman scene or did you feel like you were sort of part of it, but you were sort of part of something else during this time period? Well, we were, you know, and I've said this before, we, we felt a little bit like interlopers up here. Like we came up like in, in the wake of Op Ivy, um, and, uh, and Green Day and, um, I think we moved here in 91. Yeah. So Operation 90 is already broken up at that point. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Green Day's just taken off. Um, 
and we, you know, we, we of course we knew Green Day because we had the Lookout Records, and we, had, you know, we would we had the unfortunate um, experience of having to follow those guys on tour and hear from the promoter, oh yeah, Green Day was here last week. You should have seen there was five hundred people here then, but yeah, sorry about that, man. Um, <laughs> but we. So when we came up to to SF, like we, you know, like yes, they they we were welcomed with open arms, but we but we never really felt totally part of the Gilman scene because we weren't there at its formation and never worked the door there, um, and we also didn't really feel totally at home with all of that Boner Records and Revolver uh, distribution. Um, scene which was a little maybe a little bit older um i was just listening to blake talk about this maybe it's on that um shred with shifty podcast um yeah we 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 all agree that we didn't really seem to fit into any real scene up here we we did feel like kind of like we were we came late to to a game or something what about the maximum rock and roll scene or you know for you know obviously prior to dear you how did you feel about maximum rock and roll and those people well a lot of those people i you know we knew from the neighborhood and they were they were our friends and they were also some of those people were the people that were you know hardest on us and and most critical of us when we when we signed to a major label um including tim and all the you know all those all those people but um you know they were sticking to their guns and and we respected that, but we just didn't give a shit about it, about that for us. Um, mm. We were just ready to try something else and kind of move on, move on. Um, and, you know, unfortunately back in the day, people looked at that as like, Oh, you're turning back, you're back on, on the scene that kind of made you what you are. But I didn't, we didn't really think of it that way. In Defense of Ska will return in a moment. Hey, everybody. It's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian. And we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. I want to talk about the Nirvana tour a little bit. I I, I have some very specific details I, I, I read about. I want to ask you. Okay. Where did you read it? The internet. Okay. So, well, you know, it's true then. If you read it on the internet, <laughs> it's probably true. I guarantee you everything is totally true. Okay. Well, I don't need to ask them. No. <laughs> so, so Kurt, Kurt heard about you from the, his nanny, Callie. Mm-hmm. Callie. Yeah. Callie. True. True. She was a big fan and uh, would play your music. And then he kind of was like, what's that? Um, Callie is a dude. Oh, I'm um, sorry. It's okay. Identifies as a man, as far as I as I know. Um, he's a great artist, uh, Callie Dewitt, D E W I T T. He does uh, cool visual art. You could look him up. Um, 
a fine artist and actually was designed a lot of uh, merch for uh, Kanye before Kanye um, kind of f- got, got uh, f- flew off the rails. Mm-hmm. Um, so Callie, Callie was, uh, was Kurt and Courtney's nanny. And I guess introduced Kurt to our stuff and the wipers were supposed to open those shows. Um, and something happened and the wipers had to drop out. So at the last minute they invited us to, to fill in and which we were happy to do. And that was sort of the beginning of the kind of, Oh, these guys are sellouts thing. Cause we went on tour with, with Nirvana. That was, uh, that was a no-no. Yeah, that that is such a weird part of the story because, like, like just just accepting a tour offer by Nirvana, who are yeah yeah they're huge, but they're a good band, great band. Like that somehow equals like selling out. It's such a strange such a strange time. Yeah, they, that didn't we didn't we didn't agree with that clearly or else we wouldn't have done it. So we were like, okay, say what you will. We're going on tour with the fucking greatest band on the planet. Go fuck yourself. Yeah. And that wasn't taken kindly in some circles and that's okay. You can't please everybody, you know, like we're not for everybody. Yeah. We're inviting, you're inviting you to be part of this thing and you can do, you can take it or leave it. That's okay. If you're not going to, if you're not down. So I think it was the Chicago shows. Bob Goldthwait was there. Yeah. Bobcat. Bobcat was there and he introduced Mudhoney and Nirvana before their sets. And you guys asked if yes. he'd introduce you. And he said, no, as I don't really know who you are. Right. <laughs> you know, what's funny about that is that Bobcat used to do, used to drop in. Like I had a video store on, on Valencia street up here called lost weekend. And we were there for tw- like from ninety seven to 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 twenty seventeen, so we were there twenty years, and we opened up a comedy club in our basement, and we had a bar down there. It was basically a speakeasy, um, that um, we built, and so we started doing comedy down there, and like big comics would like show up and and do sets just for fun. Like Kamal Bell used to come and drop in and. Natasha Leggero did a whole week there, I think, before she went on tour. And Maria Bamford came, and and Bobcat would come, and uh, and do sets. And I almost brought that up to him, but I didn't. <laughs> I had I had I had every opportunity to be like, dude, fuck you for not introducing us at those Nirvana shows. But I didn't even tell him who I was. I was just like, thanks for doing a set in our little dingy windowless fire trap of a basement. Thanks, dude. Um, but it was okay, though, because at those, at those Chicago shows, we just had Ben Weasel come out and introduce us. And, of course, he pissed everybody off um, because he has a knack for that. <laughs> well, if Bobcat ever comes on this podcast, I promise you I will ask him. I will bring up the him refusing to introduce Jawbreaker. Bobcat Goldthwait, big ska fan. I'm gonna, I'm gonna bet that he is. I'm gonna bet that he is. You think? I mean, who? I just want to know who it is that likes music that 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 can't get behind like Madness and the Specials or like you know bands on Trojan Records. You know, like who? Who is that? 
Yeah. Not Bobcat. Yeah, I, I really do feel like there's something for everybody. Come on. Oh, that's another thing I was remembering. Oh my God. I saw madness and with the go-go's in like 1983. That was fun. Oh, you did. What was that? Is that, was that the Roxy or. No, no, it was like a huge, it was like a stadium show. It was like, uh, it was on, I can't remember if it was the serious moonlight. It was a Bowie tour. Wait, wait, they opened for Bowie. It was like Bowie go-go's and madness in like Anaheim. I think. I think it was at in at where the the fuck was it? It wasn't at the, it wasn't where the baseball team played. It was like some other place. It was like, but it was a stadium show. It was crazy. I'm pretty sure that's what it was. You can look it up. Look it up. I could be totally wrong, actually. Okay, one more Nirvana question. Okay, now no, go ahead. You and Hurt swapped band shirts at the end of the tour. Yes. True. True story. And so you still have you still have your Nirvana shirt, right? Yeah, totally. Or maybe my kids. I'm, one of my kids might have it. And Hertz Jawbreaker shirt is on the, is in the Sunset Boulevard Guitar Center window or something, right? It was for a while. I think that they I think that they um, sw- switched that up, and they might have wiped it clean and put a bunch of new stuff in there. I don't know why they would take Kurt's stuff out of there. But that's where it was the last time I checked. It was in the window, like at the San Francisco or the um, Sunset Boulevard um, Guitar Center in Hollywood. It's right near the Denny's there where Rodney Bingenheimer eats. Um, They have like, it's kind of like Grauman's Chinese theater. There's like dude's hands in cement and stuff, I think I want to say, on the sidewalk out front. And then they have like a window, a little like a little window of just rock and roll memorabilia and stuff. Yeah, that's where that that uh, Kurt's Jawbreaker shirt lived for for a really long time. And I heard that the guy that gave him that, um, I don't know how he got a hold of it, but I heard that he got a shitload of uh, of dough or or maybe free free gear recording equipment from guitar center oh i would have liked to have had that yeah yeah <laughs> but yeah i guess i'll have my in utero shirt somewhere somewhere knocking around in my in my huge pile of shit in my basement probably <laughs> in your archives well somewhere down there you've also probably got the ticket stub for your david bowie show uh september 9th 1983 that i i don't know i was for sure there (laughs) with with uh madness and the go-go's did you look it up yeah so that happened anaheim anaheim stadium i'm just trying to get some fucking cred you guys i just need some cred (laughs) (laughs) just need that ska cred i need some ska cred i do he saw madness in 1983 he's got more cred than me yeah that's all he needs do you do you remember jawbreaker ever playing with any ska bands um Gosh, we must have. Um, I'm yeah. trying to think. Like that. That I. I don't know how you break it up. Like, what do you call? Like, do you call like um, less than Jake? Is that third wave? Yeah, they're, they'd be third wave. Is that a third wave band? Because um, I remember there was a. Weren't there a bunch of? Weren't there a grip of bands coming out of Gainesville that were doing ska? Besides them, I can't think of any others besides them. 
they were doing ska. I thought there was more. You were saying that the, that there was a that that third wave thing was happening a lot down in in um where oh Southern California, but like but like down like in Orange like, County, right in OC. Yeah. Okay, right, yeah. right. Who are some of those bands that you think about? Say Ferris, Real uh, Big Fish, Real Big Fish. Oh, right. Those are the big ones. Well, I, it's funny because last night I was just I was at the Linda Linda show and I was talking and of course Carlos um, played drums for Real Big Fish. He's um, he's the father of two of the kids in the Linda Lindas. Oh, oh yeah, Carlos. I think started and I think he joined Real Big Fish in like two thousand two thousand one. I know um, Cheer Up was the first record he played on. Yes, yes. So I'm always needling him about about the about the resurgence of Scott and how, how he better, he better get his chops ready to, to come back. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, see, thank you for your service. I could see it happening, but um, I, I, off the top of my head, no, I don't think so. And we, ne- I don't think we ever, we never played with op Ivy. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause they had just broken up when we came, started coming up here. What about dance hall crashers? Oh, maybe we did play with dance hall crashers. I think we did. Yeah. Yeah, probably. I'm sorry. I'm a little bit sketchy on my um Sure. So it was wild. Like ago. being an archivist and having everything written down <laughs> it also gives you it gives you like all this license to be completely lazy and using your brain because Yeah. It's just all there in the machine or in the basement. So I could just yeah. go refer to it very easy handily, but like is it in my brain not all the time. So I was trying to rag, you know, knowing how we were going to do this today. I was like what do I got? What a, what ska do I got? Like what? A, you know, <laughs> but it turns out we're not really talking. We're just talking about everything, but <laughs> that's fine. It's fine too. Did I play alto sax for a while? Yes, I did. Oh yeah. Is that ska? Cred? Oh, you did. Do I have ska cred now? Was that was that in was that in high school? Uh, high school no, band? it was after. It was it was it was right the during the band, like right when the band got together. That was when he was in that uh, ska band on the side. <laughs> I wanted to play the, the riff from uh, from uh, Baker Street, I think. No, but I, I played for a while. It wasn't very good. My kid, my one of my kids also plays alto sax, actually, and, my, and, and keyboard. So, yeah, that's another thing. That's another thing. And furthermore, oh, like, what's the, <laughs> what's the problem with horns? Like, what's the big deal about horns? Like, well, you can't have horns in the song? Go fuck you. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like who said that? Like what happened in the nineties where people like, no, that's not cool anymore. You know, it's there's the thing. And I feel like this might be somewhat of a US thing. Horns are really cool, but for some reason a lot of people think they're not in the US are not cool at all. But like I don't know that other countries have that uh, attitude towards horns. That hang up, that hang up. Yeah. You know who kind of brought him back? You know who kind of brought him back and made him cool again? Rocket. Oh, yeah. Rocket from the Crypt. Totally. Yeah, I never saw anything wrong with it. I'm just looking for that Ska crown, guys. <laughs> yeah, here's, here's a little po- here's a possible Ska connection. We're going to confirm this. Uh, Dear You. Now, I read that you guys recorded Dear You in the same studio at the same time as Rancid recorded And Out Come the Wolves. Yes, we were right next door to each other. That's true. I feel like I'm answering these. I feel like I'm answering these questions like I'm in a like I'm like I'm in a, a, a cross exam room. Like, yeah, true or false? Right. 
there's like a naked light bulb hanging over my head and you've like deprived <laughs> food and coffee and yeah you're doing fine so far so far one of you guys be the good cop and one of you guys is the bad cop and I'm... <laughs> oh i'm a good cop um yeah those guys were in there making that legendary record and um and it was funny because Blake, we we Blake would just tell us a story on that sh- that shifty episode too, that like at one point we both we went in and listened to their mixes and they came and listened to ours, and Blake was like, "Oh shit, we're in trouble," because <laughs> <laughs> he could just hear it. He was like, "Yep, that's that's the one that's gonna sell, that's gonna move units." I'm not quite sure what's gonna happen with ours. And sure enough, they threw ours up against the wall, and it did not stick. It, it, Dear you has found a lot of love since then. Oh yeah, no, for sure, for sure. Yeah. But yeah, but people shit on it immediately when it came out. So yeah, but yeah, that was fun, and yeah, and and there was, you know, it's Fantasy Studios is such a legendary place that there, you know, everyone recorded there, and and um, you know, like Booker T was like walking around like in a bathrobe in the in the hallways like just drinking coffee and stuff it was cool well and then you were saying that you have you have the the reels i'm guessing from those sessions did you get those at the time or did you get those when fantasy shut down no the real the those are the only uh that the only tapes i don't have are from dear you because there's so many of them and because you're on the major at that point the reels are are were safe and sound in a um very secure warehouse, I believe, down at the Universal lot in Los Angeles until they burned up in a giant fire and are now Shit. completely lost to history. Damn. Damn. But Damn. the beauty is that when they were making the documentary about Jawbreaker, um, I thought it would be smart to get instrumental mixes of our of our stuff that they could so they could use that as like incidental uh soundtrack yeah um so i i worked it out um with universal music that they would digitize our our masters and send us um you know a hard drive of that so i could pull pull that those songs and so i actually have our masters on a hard drive. Oh, hell yeah. So that was just, that was just dumb luck because a couple of years later, the place went up in smoke and all these incredible, all this incredible music just like evaporated, which is incinerated, I should say. Yeah. I remember that happening. So I just want to go back to this uh, outcome, the wolves, because there was one interview. I think it was Blake who said that you guys are recording dear you. And um, it's, a, it's a, it's a, there's sadness in the record. It's just you guys. There's, you know, you're kind of in your own little bubble. Yes. You go over to see Rancid and there's like 20 friends there. And it's just a party. Like it's just night and day vibe, right? Yeah. Like if there were chandeliers in there, people would be swinging from that <laughs> shit. It was, it, they were having a ball. They were having a great time, just tearing it up. <laughs> and, and our shit was all like fucking dark and morose, like candle lit. <laughs> <laughs> do you guys actually have candles lit i doubt it but, <laughs> but i think i'll lie and say that we did yeah 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 
Sure. It sounds better that way. Yeah, totally. Yeah, sure. It was candle lit. It was pretty fucking gnarly. <laughs> there was some incense burning. Like <laughs> Blake was sipping Corvassier and just smoking palm oil and filtered cigarettes and drinking straight black coffee until the wee hours of the night. It was fucking grim, man. No, I mean, it was, ours was just, you know, it, it was more solitary because there's only, th- number one, there's only three of us. And then really we just had a producer and an engineer and sometimes the drum doctor would be in there tuning drums. Mm-hmm. And so at the most, there were six people in our session and that was only for three days. And then the rest of it was Blake and the engineer and the producer. It was just those three guys in there for a couple of weeks working on guitar overdubs and, and vocals. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that different scene, you know? So the, the reissue for dear you happened in 2004 and you were kind of the main person negotiating that deal, right? Cause you had the, you had the license or the master or something, right? Well, I had to, I had to pay them. Um, but yeah, I did, I did that. I, um, I got all our records back from our indie labels and I got the okay from any labels that put out split seven inches or put us out on their compilation tracks. I got the okay and the, and the master tapes back from them as well to put out um, a a compilation of all our B sides and rarities and stuff and comp tracks. Mm. Um, And I put out, I put out all of, I remastered and put out all of our LPs as well. And the only one I couldn't get buyback outright was, um, dear you. Cause, um, I was told that, you know, the universal music isn't in the business of, you know, selling masters back, giving masters back. So I had to license it from them, meaning I had to pay them. I think I had to pay them $10,000 and then give them a percentage of every, unit that was sold starting from the first one. Um, so I did that and I think I got a five year, a five year license from them. And yeah, so I sold that one for five years and it was a pain in the ass to get it. But yeah, that was my, that was my work. Um, but I was happy to do it because I, I wanted that record to become available because I saw that it was being, sold online for like a lot of money and that people were, you know, either bootlegging it or, or, you know, paying crazy amounts of money for the original pressings. They only did one pressing of dear you. And then when it didn't sell, they just kind of gave up on us and, and just bailed. So you could find them in the, in the cutout bins or you can find them on CD um, for super cheap, but yeah, they just kind of bailed on us. And before streaming became a thing, they were more open to licensing it to me um, to put out the physical copy of it, which I was grateful for because then I could, you know, be real completist about it and and get it into the hands of people that wanted it um, for cheap, you know, for for a normal a normal price point, as they say. Cause I knew it wasn't lost on me that people were kind of learning about us again. And, and, you know, other bands were kind of like name checking us, like new, new groups were coming up that were real super popular that would be like, Oh yeah. Love, uh, dear you. 
and they they kind of breathe new life into to that record um which, which helped a great deal and and things like youtube um and i'm sure uh what was that what was that first that first uh like napster like all that all that stuff shitty as it was kind of kept that record alive for a while um while the label had let it languish into obscurity um but yeah i got that back and put it out for five years and then lost that license and now i think universal is pressing it again Hmm. that was the longest answer of this entire (laughs) (laughs) when i could have just said yep oh but that yep's not a good answer that was the answer we wanted though okay (laughs) but yeah it was it was a pain in the ass it was hard to get it back from them i had to go through a million different people and lawyers and sign contracts and all that shit and pay and ironically pay them for a record that they never had never paid us for (laughs) now speaking of dear you's legacy here's i want to ask about this story i read you're driving you're driving down the road I assume in San Francisco, your daughter, I think, is behind the wheel. You see somebody with a Jawbreaker bumper sticker. Mm -hmm. And you pull up, you pull next to them, you say, hey, that's my band. And uh, the driver goes, oh, oh, shit. And then shows you a Dear You tattoo. And you know what the the craziest thing about that story? Yeah. It It was Chris Isaac. No way. No, it wasn't. It wasn't. <laughs> but we'll say we'll just say it is. Just cut that out. Cut out the no. Way. <laughs> cut out the no way and just let it ride. I was trying to think of a. I was trying to think of a local celebrity that um, that it's that seems like yeah that might that might have happened. But Chris, I mean Chris Isaac seems believable. It's believable. I mean he's an he surfs Ocean Beach. You know what I mean? Yeah. It seems like he'd be in the mix somehow. Do we have proof that he doesn't have a dear you tattoo? <laughs> no, I, th- I think I do remember that happening. And it was it, what, what I think the reason why that was written about was because it was, it was really the first time that I think that my kid kind of was like, wait, what's this now? Like, cause they, my kid didn't come up with, didn't really know what was going on in, in pops old, old life you know what i mean um and it happened another thing that happened someone we were fostering a dog and someone came over and they noticed uh i have a painting on i had a painting of um the the cover of one of our records on the wall and the people that came to pick up the dog from us were like wait a minute is that is that jawbreaker record and i was like yeah and my kid was like wait a minute what's happening now like it was it was kind of revelatory for for her how long were you cool in her eyes i mean i i think i was i like to think i was cool before she knew that, or they both of my kids before they knew that i did did a band and stuff but i but they just didn't know exactly because their mom's kind of a rock star too um and they're and they were just you know it was only when it was only when we played it right when they went to Riot Fest that they were like, "Holy shit, what? Like this was this wasn't just he wasn't just blowing smoke. Like this was um this was a thing at some point." <laughs> has it has it stuck? Are you still cool, or does that fade away quickly when you said do your homework? Well, my kid, no, I mean my kids are my kids are cool and they know cool, 
and I and I like to think I'm okay. Um, but you know, you never know. They might just be rolling out right now. I could send this to them though, just rolling their eyes like, oh my god. They just didn't know. I they had they had they they were exposed to a lot of really great music as kids coming up as like little babies even. Um, and they and they know a lot of people in our world. You know, like they're tight with you know, with like Ian and Henry are like they're like uncles basically. Um, but they just didn't. I just didn't really foist our band on them. Mm-hmm. Listen to this. I used to be cool. <laughs> but like my wife was one of those OG DC people so they they came up knowing all of those all those Fugazi guys and all them um and they probably just didn't think anything of it honestly yeah they were just like oh, yeah, whatever some adults do that some adults <laughs> go make noise that's strange i can't imagine uh growing up that way yeah it's a trip right um but yeah, um, that's that's yes, yep, that's true. I did that did happen when I drove up on somebody and they had a, a sticker on the car. It wasn't like something that happened every day. I think it was kind of a novel thing. That's why that that person was writing about it. Thank you for listening to In Defense of Ska. To support the show, sign up for our Patreon. Intro and outro music by Slow Gherkin from the EP Lives. Additional music by Dan P. and the Bricks. Please rate and review the podcast and tell a friend. Follow at In Defense of Ska on social media. The book In Defense of Ska by Aaron Carnes is available from Clash Books. Order it online. Chris Reeves of SPI is our editor. This is your co-host, Adam Davis of Omnigon, leaving you by saying ska now more than ever. You're not punk, and I'm telling everyone, Aaron Carnes, that you're not punk. You're ska. I'm ska. So. (laughs) That was dope. Yeah. Hey, so if you were in one of the Gilman bands and you know who I'm talking about uh, and you listen to this episode and you enjoyed what we did reach out we'd love to have you on the show yeah and Aaron yes I almost forgot but I can't because we bring it up every week yeah this conversation continues over on our Patreon it is wow you know if you thought that first part was good you are at the second part it's going to blow your mind you can't wait so five dollars you'll be supporting this podcast you'll be listening to these episodes ad free Mm. you will have access to our archive of other discussions yes you have access to our discord where we talk with other fans of the podcast about all things ska related and you know what too we don't say this often in our little pitch but we have special monthly bonus episodes they are off topic or they are a, usually a different approach to the kind of episodes we do. We also have other perks up there. Uh, there's a, a tote bag with our logo on it. Yes. There's a, an enamel pin. Ooh. You know, go get yourself something. Treat yourself. Yeah. You're special. We'll see you next week. We're not going to tell you who the guest is, but you should just subscribe and show up. Yeah. You should extra subscribe, not knowing who it is. Subscribe twice. 
Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks.